to the Jungle Times, a podcast that explains how understanding nature's management principles can help you enhance your personal power and leadership skills. In a world beset by climate change, mass migration, and social unrest, fake news and bad politics are threatening the future of our planet. This series of timely presentations will demonstrate how nature's 4.5 billion years of success is based on the emergence of creative leaders. It is my pleasure to introduce your guide, the only researcher on Earth who treks tropical jungles in a wheelchair, author and training consultant, Lawrence Poole. Welcome to the Jungle Times podcast. I'm Lawrence Poole. And this is episode number 11. It's called Self-Management in Nature. Many people don't consider it, but we are a part of nature, even if often apart from it. We are biological creatures, and as such, we are subject to its management rules. Last time, I told you about five strategic roles we can master. We can be stalkers of information, dreamers of possibilities, seers of opportunity, leaders in action to adjust, and persuasive communicators. I said that by practicing certain skills related to playing those roles, we can live enchanted lives. We can live in a state of grace. The problem is that most people find adopting a new habit or learning a new skill somewhat difficult. So in this presentation, I'm going to explore the self-management required to succeed in whatever you set your mind to doing. So please stand by. In episode three of the podcast, I explain how nature's eighth principle of self-management is called self-awareness. That notion suggests that complex systems, like human beings, are conscious and can become aware of their own character, behavior, and circumstances. I often use the howler monkey to drive home this idea, but it applies to every complex system. Howler monkeys remind me that awareness is a quality that is shared by more than just human beings. Self-awareness is an adjunct to complexity, and it emerges in very complex systems. But I think you have to spend some time with another species to appreciate its capacity to think intelligently and to feel a range of emotions. Self-awareness is a key to self-correction, and when you are aware of your strengths and weaknesses, you can plan strategically. You can capitalize on your strengths and shore up your weaknesses. So this brings me to nature's ninth management principle. Aware, a complex system must self-empower. We can change our character, behavior, or circumstances. In her book, The Art of Strategy, Author R.L. Wing says that the resistance to take your place as a creative leader by empowering yourself means you've succumbed to your inner enemy. She suggests that we defeat our inner demons by managing five stages in a devoted strategy. In the first stage, she says we must analyze our situation. This most important first step will also determine if we are ready to take the challenge. If, for example, you believe that having more self-esteem can help you reach your goals, then you must analyze what this means to you. You have to note what needs to be changed and how the change might impact you. If you think working on your self-esteem is worth the effort, 
If that is something you feel that you should do and you are determined to succeed, then you are ready. If you experience even the slightest hesitation, start somewhere else with an undertaking that is less threatening. What matters is wanting personal power and not quitting until you are satisfied with your progress. Whatever the first step, it will lead to another, and another and another, and you will live long and prosper. In the second stage, you must learn to, as much as possible about your inner opponent. What is limiting your progress exactly? How does it interfere with attaining a joyful life? Familiarize yourself with your habits, your reactions, and the effect that your inner demons have on different aspects of your life, on your family and friends, and on your evolutionary direction. In the example I mentioned, where, when, and how do you suffer from low self-esteem? Be a stalker of information and question your demons. Take notes. Soon you'll have the enemy surrounded. Give it no room to escape. The third stage is to develop a winning strategy. Be precise and detailed when you prepare your action plan. Avoid half measures by using rewards that encourage progress. Set goals and imagine a treat for when you reach them. Work your strategy as if you were ridding yourself of a pesky insect or unclogging a nasty drain. Defeating any enemy might require special preparation and tools. If you need help, get a coach or a trainer who understands strategy or read up on the subject. Vanquish your excuses and your crutches like self-pity, anger, and fear. Stop praying to God and start listening to wisdom. The fourth stage in a devoted strategy is to review your plans and their chance for success. Before you act, it is important to re-examine your plan to make sure that, once in place, everything progresses as you want it to. If you anticipate that a decision might affect others in your environment, for example, determine how and what the effects on them will be. Allow for them, but adjust your strategy so you can avoid having to modify your plan once it's in motion. A well-thought-out strategy can save you time, energy, and resources. Remember that there are two ways to fight a 1,000-headed dragon. You can either battle each of those snarling and biting heads one after the other, or you can cut the dragon's neck and see all the heads fall at once. Try to change. Choose the most disruptive element in your life, your greatest enemy, and invest your energy to change that one thing. Then, when the road is clear, you will see what was behind the barrier, what was holding you back. Until then, just recognize that you have an enemy to vanquish. The fifth stage in the art of strategy is to actualize your plan. Understanding and adjustment can only follow your actions. They cannot precede them. You must become a warrior of spirit. I'll put a link to a free copy of Miss Wing's book with a description to this podcast. The wars between your old reactive mind and its limits and a new empowered leader's mind. Be proactive. Habits can be difficult to overcome, so the wise person will tackle the most unpleasant tasks first. Get them out of the way. After that, it'll be blue skies and sunshine for the rest of the day, the rest of the way. The magic is that if you were to change your neural paradigms in here, 
you can also change your relationship with the world out there. If you add self-esteem to your character, in my example, then you will naturally assemble a better world for yourself. Making up your mind is a large measure, a reaction to your energy and motion, or your emotion, and to your momentum. If you remain reactive to the limits of your own character, behavior, and circumstances, you are poorly prepared for a world in constant change. Science has found that, aware of it or not, you are reacting to emotions that determine how your neural paradigms are assembled, how your mind is being made up. Your mood releases hormones that pre-select the neurotransmitters that open and close your brain's synapses as you assemble neurons into thought. To use a modern analogy, your emotions are the software in your brain's hardwired perceptions. From a wide inventory of possible reactions to any given circumstance or response to an event, your mood predetermines what patterns of neurons you will engage and assemble into your reality. You can perceive or make up your mind in many ways. You can be increasingly more creative and intelligent by realizing that you assembled your mind by exercising choice. We are reactive to a G-I-G-O, G-S-I-G-S-O program. G-I-G-O means garbage in, garbage out. G-S-I-G-S-O means great stuff in, great stuff out. The bottom line is, what hormones are you releasing? Do you resonate to fear or anger or love and joy? We are born with a hundred billion neurons and science says we create brand new ones. Any of them can be linked to others in many ways. So in fact, we have trillions of possible connections to choose from. We can assemble a genius potential. We grin at the prospect of being better humans and then we go back to business as usual, forgetting this amazing potential in favor of old habits. We take the path of least resistance. We live within our usual, habitual, and reactive neural paradigms. We may know that we have an incredible potential, but we often just forget about it. For the sake of an analogy, imagine that each of the neurons in your brain is like a single snapshot in a hundred billion picture roll of film. You move through life snapping pictures of your experiences one at a time, and you store them into your short-term and then into your long-term memory as plus-minus values. Depending how you feel, you'll assemble your mind with a positive or a negative emotional charge. You can experience the rest of your life in many ways, but as you will think your way forward, depending on how you feel, your mind will emerge from your emotional charge and momentum. Your options will be limited to your mood, to your emotions. Mind is assembled from mood. A mind can only draw awareness from its limited sphere. The brain, however, contains units of memory that go all the way back to the primordial soup. Most of us will just look at select images from a small and recent memory in our giant roll of film. We are actors in the same show that we are playing over and over again. Our minds are locked into very limited patterns of brain use. Our conscious and subconscious memories are templates that channel our behavior and animate it. 
Repeating an action causes the same reaction, or as the wise man says, same shit, different day. Soon our brain will entertain no alternatives. Our neural paradigms are set and assembled in here with a limited perception of out there. We are limiting our own creative potential and well-being. Our neurological habits keep us anchored in mediocrity, while at any moment an incredible potential surrounds us. The memory that is telling us how things are is interfering with our ability to see how things could be. Mind is an instrument of discernment. It'll evaluate good-bad, good-bad, good-good, bad-bad, or very-very good. It can process every shade. Our neural paradigms are set to regurgitate our memory, what we were told and what we experienced subjectively yesterday, and this in continuum, so our mind is always almost made up. Try to imagine what your mind could be missing. Creative self-empowerment requires that we repattern existing memories into new perceptions of the world and how we see ourselves in it. A higher intelligence is available as conscious choice. You can invest in your creative capital. Dozens of tools and syntheses will allow you to empower yourself. When I write about the empowered mind, I use the acronym M-I-N-D, Move in New Dimensions, to distinguish it from the normal reactive mind. All the prophets, mystics, saints, and sorcerers remembered in history explained a higher order and how to access heaven's intelligence here on earth. Here are a couple of interesting facts that you should know about the creative process. We've been directed by significant others, our immediate family, tribe, and society, to encode and decode our perceptions of the world in their selected fashion. Once we encode our mind's perceptions and conclusions, they are very difficult to change. Self-empowerment training means that we must think and behave in ways that are outside of our limiting boxes. I mean this as more than just a buzzword. It is only when you are detached from your limited way of seeing can you access new ideas or assemble information in new ways. Dare to think differently. To learn the required skills, you must etch new neuropathways. The limits to subjective creativity are natural, but when a brain experiences something for the first time, it opens up to new potential, and that potential can be etched in many, many ways, with dozens of variations. As soon as an experience becomes defined, though, any similar later experiences will be anticipated and tainted by the expectation supplied by that very first memory. Of all the options and potentials, brain-mind will only now offer a few variations. Defining an event means giving it a past. Research shows that when we can overpower our new experiences and cause them to be repeated in an old way, relatively speaking. If our brain experiences an event in a similar way for a third time, it sets the definition in stone and brain-mind will no longer offer variations. From then on, it will be difficult to get that brain-mind to alter its perceptions. We will then say that she has mommy issues or he has problems with authority figures so as to explain those reactive patterns and biases. 
practice insistence makes it so. That means that you can move forward as a prisoner of your past. So what about you? What habits are limiting you? What kind of behavior are you dragging from your past and letting it sabotage joy in your present? We can project our past into the present and thus co-create the constant now. We practice our fear, our anger, our apathy, or other reactions to life, and we adjust our practice insistence so that becomes, it's just the way I am. Regardless of our insistence, though, nature's ninth principle of self-organization says that we must change in order to empower. We must graduate from being reactive to the idea of good to adopting a proactive motivation so that we can manage our lives. By proactive, I mean to act consciously. In her book, Ms. Wynn suggested that self-management lets us change our character, our behavior, and our circumstances. In the months that followed my car accident, which caused the loss of my use of my physical body, my capacity to earn a living, my sexual identity, and much more, I had to learn self-management. As you can imagine, having survived death, I no longer sweated the small stuff. But when I left the rehab hospital, I still had to re-examine my past to reset my priorities. I was totally unprepared for life as a disabled man, except for what I knew about Abraham Maslow's theories of self-motivation. I decided to start there. I would use his hierarchy of need to rebuild my life on a more creative basis. I would consciously make my way to where I could enjoy my life as I had before. I focused all my energy on my quest to understand the big questions about my out-of-body and pure light experiences, and this while I struggled to meet the needs of a handicapped person. I divided my activities into an external participation and an inner journey. I wanted answers to the hundreds of questions that being out of my body had provoked. My religious and philosophical roots had been shaken by a reality much larger than anything I'd had imagined. I saw the dream world as it overlaps the physical world. I saw the creating intelligence emerging from a pinpoint of nothingness and manifesting itself as everything. I saw infinity, but emotionally thought God as an extension of this world, not apart from it. God is the ocean, I am a drop in that ocean. I had to redefine myself according to my new reality. As a teenager, I'd entered monastery to see if I had the calling for the cloistered life. I found that I had not, but I did make my peace with philosophical values that endure. Now I had to question many of my beliefs. I had to find real answers to practical things like why, for example, when I was thought dead by everyone and all the machinery, why did I continue to exist? I concluded that I am not my physical body. When I saw it from being outside of it, when I flatlined. On day three of the ordeal, I saw the divine light become everything. I experienced God's love and felt myself explode into a hundred billion discarnate pieces of light. For an instant, I was everything. I was everywhere. After I was back in my body, I made an appointment with destiny. I also prayed to never forget the awe and joy I felt when out of my body. My mind raced on for hours. 
my joyful reverie was interrupted by the pain from various medical procedures. Then, from within, I felt a command to try and understand why I wasn't dead. My mind suddenly stopped racing, and instead, I focused on healing. I had a lot of work to do. I was motivated to learn about my potential in spite of the limits I now had. More than 40 years have followed those first days, and I've spent most of that time contemplating nature's rules. My holy guardian angel guided me to explore the theophysics view of universe, and I've arranged my conclusions in a mathematical synthesis called the unified field formula. A mathematical absolute, it describes the God consciousness that permeates the physical world and how we can benefit from it. Back then, in that instant when I first saw beyond the feedback loop of my own mind, I understood human motivation as a reaction to six principles that govern a hierarchy of need. My needs became apparent to me as I expanded my perception from having a reactive paradigm to becoming proactive and then creative. I understood and climbed the hierarchy. I filled my needs at every level. As a result, my mind expanded. I thus discovered four basic levels of desire that we all react to, physiological, security, social, and ego needs, and four levels of need where we explore beyond our perceptions as our quality of life needs. And they include subjective growth, self-actualization, and connectivity. I saw that I could only reach higher states of consciousness by filling my more mundane desires. Then I could focus on my psychic, spiritual, and creative needs. The creative idea is to not ignore the desires of the flesh, but to fill them so you have a healthy mind and spirit too. Creative order includes equilibrium, so filling all our needs is required to live in a state of grace. A lot of people think that their behavior is justified by the circumstances of their lives, and they have good reason for being the way they are. If asked, many would probably argue that they have free will, and, by and large, they choose to live the life that they want. In fact, the philosophers suggest that most people live quiet lives of desperation. It is a fact that the average person's will isn't free at all. Research agrees. If you were free to act as you truly want to, would you so readily self-sabotage? Would you work so hard at resisting the marvel of your own potential? Where I live, in the free and democratic country, many people treat glitz and glamour as if they had value, or wishing for fame or some other silliness. Others mask their delusions by acquiring goods, learning psychobabble, adopting some sad religiosity, or living with anxiety and guilt. People ignore their own best interests in exchange for immediate gratification. They have a need to feel good, and that limits by their habit. Consider how today, all over this planet, Billions of people suffer miserably because we, the leaders of the free and democratic world, are able to tune out their lament and satiate our own needs. Almost two billion people live in extreme poverty, and more than 800 million people had no fresh water this morning. There is a correlation between human need and human will, so the ultimate question might be, what is the nature of human motivation? Think about it. 
I'll be right back. I'll explain motivation from both the nature and the nurture perspectives. First, motivation is hardwired into our human DNA, and it manifests as instinct. DNA is imprinted so we obey the survive and prosper law, just like other self-organizing biological systems. That's the nature part. Survive means that to fill these physiological needs, air, water, food, clothing, and shelter, and prosperity requires that we feel secure about meeting them in the long term. How we do it was learned. That's the nurture part. The word motivation shares its origin with words like motor, motion, and motive. So you'll understand the great secret of self-motivation by realizing it to be the basis for your behavior. It is the motor that puts into motion your reason for being. It is the motive that stimulates, drives, and restricts you. As such, the rules of motivation tell us who we are. They also determine all that we are and all that we can be. Motivation influences our capacity to perceive, to learn, and to grow. It shapes our mind with its expectations and desires. Motivation directs what we do. It relegates our opinions, options, and choices to moods. Psychologist Clark Hull defines our reactive movement through life as our desire to fill a void, a biological lack, a deficiency that is crucial to our survival. Psychology is based on the premise that anything a human being of any age can be observed doing persistently, consistently, and repeatedly is motivated. The level of need we are pursuing tells us how we are experiencing life. For example, if you explore and assert your physiological needs, you might withdraw from situations and individuals that limit you and even be antagonistic towards them. You'll embrace self-fulfillment and start giving your health some serious attention. Looking good and keeping fit will be important to you. The primary motivation in human behavior is hardwired as the desire to satisfy physical needs as they emerge in time. Because filling needs that are constantly changing compels us with different reactions and different emotions at different times, we are condemned to live in relatively reactive states of mind. No matter how we behave, we are motivated to fill needs. If we stop feeding our body, it would feed on itself until you die. An example of how this action works is called dehydration. The body needs water, and that generates a desire, our nature, to drink. Thirst is a natural reaction. Our movement will then be influenced by a biological need, called thirst, and subjective knowledge, water, beer, or juice. And that suggests that the choice will be filled by nurture. Our needs are translated into emotion, or energy in motion, and we are motivated to move to seek water, beer, or juice. Our mind will direct our body to liquid fulfillment, or will die. 
Abraham Maslow built on Clark Hull's theories, adding that human reaction is not only motivated by physiological need, but that we have a need to enhance our psychological worth and to esteem it as well. He explained that we are motivated to satisfy a hierarchy of need that appears during our lifetime. We must fill every level in that hierarchy to be fully aware of our potential. Joy, passion, and personal power are rewards to those persons who invest in their creative capital. This because filling our needs engages us in the creative process, and acquiring power is a result of that process. Those who remain oblivious to their potential will suffer from the lack, dissatisfaction, and resulting stress. Motivation has little to do with the enthusiastic rah-rah pumped up by an excited conference speaker. Enthusiasm is contagious, and because enthusiastic people certainly seem motivated, it's easy to confuse the two. In fact, the word enthusiasm comes from the Greek entheos, which means with God. To be enthusiastic is to be filled with the creative fire that comes from being a vehicle for an impassioned life. To be enthusiastic, you must freely and good-naturedly give your creative energy to the world. The more you creatively spend your energy, the more infinity replaces what you spend. The exchange is experienced as passion. Enthusiasm is not a condition to being motivated. I'm sure you know some people who are motivated to be bad or to be stupid. I discovered that everyone is motivated all the time. Now, I know that's a controversial statement, but unless you realize that being motivated doesn't necessarily mean being creative, enthusiastic, or even positive, you might want to argue with me. A person can be motivated to stay in bed all day, to negatively disrupt the neighborhood, or to go on a shooting spree. We can be motivated or moved to learn, to share, to creatively transform something ordinary into something wondrous. People are motivated by different ideas and for different reasons, but always in answer to a need. Even if our reactions seem determined by circumstances, we are always constantly answering the hierarchy of need. If a suicidal person chooses to end his or her life, if an alcoholic forces down bad booze, and if a battered woman chooses to remain with her abuser, it is because they are motivated to do so. Before my accident and hospitalization, I knew Maslow's guiding principle for ascending the motivational hierarchy. He listed two principles. One, a need satisfied is no longer a motivator. And two, a need unsatisfied is a negative motivator. The months in hospital gave me a second chance, and I immediately put my knowledge into practice. I expanded on Maslow's perspective and added four additional principles to those he defined. I experienced their importance during my ordeal. Instant to instant, I had no idea what was happening to me. There are more forces at play and greater than my personal view allowed. As Hamlet tells Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than dreamt of in your philosophy. As an example, at one point I was hurting so bad that I wanted to die but I couldn't. And then I was given morphine, and I was free from pain, and I was hoping to be fine. 
but found myself in a deadly crisis. I didn't want to die, but suddenly I was. Strangely, that experience comforted me. I recognized that my perception is very limited. When the doctors thought me dead, I clearly was not. The four principles I added to Maslow's served me well as I experienced them. I never suffered from a negative psychological reaction that is often part and parcel of a trauma like mine. I was never depressed, nor did I go into denial over my disability. I didn't suffer anxiety, all because I understood how these four principles guide me into a larger creating force. Before a negative mindset could get hold of me, I acted on the principles. As I understood it, the first principle of self-motivation states, the sphere of awareness is a self-organized and closed-loop system. I recognized this principle early on. It helped me to avoid being discouraged or depressed. I remember the exact sequence of events. When I'd had enough strength to sit up in bed, my physical therapist wheeled in an enormous chair, sort of like a giant lazy boy, and told me that I was going to learn how to sit vertically that day. Two orderlies picked up my lifeless body and placed it into the lazy boy on wheels. For the first time in months, I was sitting vertically. I then experienced such a flood of sensations that I didn't realize I was losing consciousness. I woke up back in my bed and quite confused. The staff explained that my blood had lost its habit of circulating, that my feet had become beet red and my face ghostly white, that I'd passed out. I divided the rest of my life into two categories, what I know, what I don't know, the known and the unknown. I explained that they both have a quality. The quality of the known is that it can be shared. The quality of the unknown is that it will reveal itself if challenged. We'll try again tomorrow, the physiotherapist promised, hopefully. I kept an open mind. I'd show up and do my best. It took me more than a week to reach the point where I could sit comfortably for a short while without becoming physically distressed. As I didn't know what to expect, I treated each day as a complete blank. Try again? Sure. What do I have to lose? It's do or die. I did everything I could and let infinity take care of the details. I truly believe that this played in my favor because if at any point I decided that I couldn't endure the simple task of sitting up, I'd be in an institution today. I had first-hand experience that my mind is indeed a closed-loop system as I really didn't know what each day would bring. I didn't ignore the obvious. I just didn't want to organize my thinking around ignorant speculations. So every day, I tried. I freshened my mind and tried again. Every day, I organized myself to face the unknown by opening myself to it. Brain mind is a closed-loop system, but we can open the loop. Most people like to believe that they have an open mind. We tend to forget, if we ever realize it, that brain mind is a closed loop and a self-organizing system. If we walked about with an open mind, we'd be bombarded by so much information coming at us from every direction that we'd literally overload and lose our marbles. Edward de Bono did a lot of research on the brain as a self-organizing system 
and he wrote more than 80 books that explain strategies like lateral thinking technique is designed to disarm our tendency to self-sabotage. I described the technique in episode 6 called In My Toolbox. The Bono found that, aware of it or not, each of us pre-selects what can enter our sphere of awareness and we disregard the rest of the world. Because we can't bear to be without answers, people easily ingest ignorance and fake news rather than open their minds to facts that might require change. To integrate the first principle of self-motivation into your daily life, you must learn how to open your mind. The second principle of self-motivation states, the solution to a problem cannot be found at the same level of realization as the problem. This principle suggests that we must be flexible with our thinking if we want to find solutions to problems. Answers that stem from reliable logic in one paradigm can seem irrational in another. Without denying the existence of situations that must be managed or challenges that must be met, problems only exist in the eye of the beholder. Since both the solution and its problem coexist in space-time, we must change our way of perceiving if we want to solve anything. In episode 3 of the podcast, How Nature Manages Complex Situations, I use mountains as analogies for problems. I said that reaching the apex gives us a view from any position on the baseline. This realization suggests that we must somehow detach ourselves from problems to see them more objectively. That's why it's easier to give advice to other people. If you are not personally involved in a situation, you can more clearly find solutions to problems. People affected by a problem are rather oblivious to their solution because they are emotionally attached to the problem. No problem is objective or neutral or common to all people, but if we let plus one represent the problem, then minus one will be the answer. An example, war and violence may well be disastrous to public welfare, but they are without doubt opportunities for armed merchants to sell off their inventory and realize huge profits. If you see the situation as problematic, the mathematical equation plus one plus minus one equals zero will help you find the solution. For example, if you want to eliminate war, plus one. You must add to it its perfect opposite value, peace, as minus one. Now this may seem simple, but consider how the actions needed to end the war are not the same actions as those required to start a peace. For a solution to fit it, it has to be more intelligent than the problem. We'll try to end the war by sending troops to defend our interests. They, however, will not see it that way, and they will defend against the invaders will shoot back, and two sides shooting at each other is called war. If we want peace, promoting tourism and good governance are better bets, they're better strategies. A flexible paradigm will invite the unknown to become known, and by opening itself to the multitude of solutions that might be totally invisible to the rigid paradigm. A brilliant tool to help you solve any problem is the Dictionary of Antonyms. By reducing any problematic situation to a word or an expression, its antonyms will give you the options that lead to solutions. To integrate the second principle, you must develop a flexible way of thinking. 
The third principle of motivation states that we have an evolutionary need to solve all our problems. Most people's lives are filled with a variety of problems that are most often the result of how they live. Some of these problems are simple and even trivial, while others are more complex and can have major importance to the persons who experience them. Many people believe they put their negative experiences behind them because they've forgotten them or choose to ignore them. We like to believe that we can be freed from the effects of our negative bad conditions in our upbringing, but nothing can be further from the truth. Even if our genetic baggage can come back to haunt us, everything that isn't confronted will continue to haunt us. And because we may never have learned the proper responses to a healthy life, we may never know how to react. So we get caught up in a cycle wherein ignorance is not bliss. For example, if a child is raised without being nurtured and praised, it will not develop a very positive self-image and will not have much experience nurturing others. This person will become an adult whose own kids will have their own self-image sabotage. And the wisdom books say the sins of the father are passed unto the sons, or the moms and daughters too. These continued cycles of negativity demand that each of us take our personal limits very seriously and address them, so we no longer pass them on. We each have a personal mix of problems that require attention. Even the most basic definitions of what constitutes a problem will find an argument. But I'll suggest that problems can be found wherever we notice differences between a situation we find ourselves in and our perceived ideal of that situation, or when the path to our objectives gets difficult or confusing. We have the need, the potential, the capacity for a more creative way of perceiving. This need is not always apparent as more basic needs tend to overpower us. According to psychological studies, Finding a solution to a problem requires us to look at three vital aspects of it. One, the problem causing the situation as you perceive it. Two, your intended objective or desired better situation. And three, the strategy that will allow you to move from one to two. These studies also stress the importance of defining the problem in detail and being very accurate with your intended objectives to determine a correct and doable plan of action. You should recognize how problems that remain unsolved consume an extraordinary amount of energy. Focusing on the problem tends to lock us into a left-brain mode, while creative solutions emerge on the right side of awareness. The brain's hemispheres are constantly communicating inside their closed-loop circuits, but problematic situations need a breakout action plan. Sometimes a problem holds our inner dialogue engaged in such a way that is so powerful we'll hardly remember the road we took to drive home or where we left our car keys when we got there. Nature's way is to have us manage our problems. We can start the day with a resolve to do it, but habits and new challenges take over and then control our mind until late into the night, at which time we've just added more problems to those we've already stored up. Stress is the result of those thoughts going round and round in our mind in the futile hope that solutions might just happen on their own and our problems will solve themselves. We shouldn't ever forget that creativity is 2% inspiration and 98% perspiration. 
Creativity means work. Creative leaders are they who have no resistance to doing all the work all the time. They take care of all the details and settle any situation that needs as it manifests. Winners get that way by doing things that losers won't do. People who are overpowered by their inner dialogue will greatly benefit from using a notebook, as I explained in episode 6, to record their thoughts. Take 10 minutes when you wake up in the morning to write down what's on your mind. This will create a void, a space that will allow you to free your spirit from those closed-loop thoughts that imprison you. Try it. As your inner world is being taken seriously, your outer view will expand magically. To integrate the third principle, take responsibility for your life by committing to actions that will make it better. Then, the fourth principle of creative motivation is simply nature's push so we satisfy all our needs. Motivation does not come from forces out there in the environment or anywhere else. Enthusiasm and a high-energy persona are not necessarily parts of it. The process of being motivated is rather simple. We are in motion to fill needs. Nature has dictated that with each need comes a desire to satisfy it. Motivation is movement with a motive. It is behavior with creating intent, if we decide to see it that way. The motivational drive is first a survival instinct. Then our genetic and tribal conditioning kick in. And lastly, our conscious decision born of high self-esteem. Our innards are pushing us to be joyful, to satisfy innate needs. Integrating the fourth principle means we must fill all our needs. Abraham Maslow identified two other principles in his theories of self-actualization. As he stated, the fifth principle of motivation states that a need satisfied is no longer a motivator. As each level of need is filled, our attention is drawn to another level, which, if satisfied, gives way to yet another. The idea of ascending a hierarchy makes sense when you realize that it's only on a full stomach that you have the energy needed to protect yourself from danger. It's only when your physical needs are filled will the metaphysical needs emerge. We'll concern ourselves with tomorrow only after our immediate needs are met. I can vouch for it. When I was lying flat on my back in the hospital, unable to move and relying on machines to breathe, on orderlies to turn me every two hours, on nurses' aides to feed me and clean me, and on doctors for just about everything else, I wasn't concerned by anything emotional, intellectual, or spiritual. I was just holding on to physical life. If a need is satisfied, though, it ceases to compel. If it is ignored, however, it will return in time and time again and become more and more demanding. It may seriously disrupt your life. For example, if not satisfied, the need to feel secure in a relationship will be projected outward as jealousy. When jealousy and its need to control another or conditions out there replaces self-esteem and feeling secure in here, well then obsessive-compulsive disorders will often follow. A fetish is an example of a need that is not satisfied at some level. Compelled by an unknown neurosis, if not satiated, that fetish will strangely alter our normal behavior as we seek fulfillment. You are not likely to obsess on what to have for lunch if you've had a good breakfast. 
but if you skip a meal or two, tell me what you'll be thinking about. We integrate the fifth principle of motivation by shifting our focus to higher level concerns as we satisfy our more basic needs. Then the sixth principle states that a need unsatisfied is a negative motivator. Needs that are not satisfied can dominate a person's behavior and halt any further progress. This sixth principle suggests that if our basic needs are not met, it's probably that we will not fill higher needs like friendship, joy, creative self-actualization, and more. When a need is ignored due to situations beyond your control, it can cause you to be in such a state of dissatisfaction that it risks diminishing your life. Think of self-esteem issues and how they can ruin relationships or other sabotaging habits that affect your overall sense of well-being. I had a friend who died from a cocaine overdose at 37 years of age. He had consumption problems since a very young age. His mother was a terrible cook who apparently boiled the flavor out of everything she made. He was 12 years old when he earned enough money to pay for lunch at a restaurant and then, hallelujah, flavor, deliciousness, magic. He became a superb athlete to be sure that he always had enough money to eat well. His constant search for the huge aha rush he got with his first taste of deliciousness fueled him, and then food and drink ruled him, and he was ingesting just in search of a rush. Consuming to find that rush on his first taste of flavor led to coke, and that triggered a heart attack. Successful human beings have a need to feel that they are in control of their life, and if that control is put at risk, then they will do battle. If you put at risk a nation's livelihood, people will go to war. The war is waged out there against others, even if it risks destroying us in here. The truth be told, in a single sentence, repression is our only sin. The need unfulfilled is a negative motivator. Not filling a need makes us negative and miserable, and because misery loves company, we'll want to control others. I explain six principles of creative motivation. To manage the first principle in your daily life, you must learn how to open your mind. To manage the second principle of self-motivation, you must solve all your problems by developing a flexible way of thinking. To manage the third principle, take responsibility for your life and commit to actions that can make it better. Managing the fourth principle of self-motivations means you'll fill all your needs physical, emotional, intellectual, spiritual, and creative. To be joyful, you must thrive. You'll manage the fifth principle of self-motivation by shifting your focus to higher needs as you satisfy the more basic desires. To manage the sixth principle of self-motivation, you must recognize that your negative perceptions are a result of a failure to satisfy your higher needs. You must invest in your creative capital. Think about it. I'll be right back. My shift from a reactive paradigm to an expansive, magical mindset required that I better understand my inner dialogue or the kinds of thoughts that tend to empower or sabotage me. 
I identified my hierarchy of need and determined how to satisfy it. I mapped out the details that I aspired to. I basically wanted to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. I worked at it. I consciously filled all my needs. For example, I kept fit, faced my limiting emotional pitfalls, and made a list of the good, the bad, and the stupid people in my life on how best to manage my time with them. I even invented a self-styled disability yoga. The hierarchy is transpersonal. We'll choose to answer a need with either a strong or a weak interaction, and that defines the differences between us. Some people prize fitness and health. Others, not so much. Some believe sex is important. Others, no. How we actualize our needs distinguishes us from one another. It also determines our degree of attainment of what we consider a quality of life. While we all have the same needs, what importance we give them and how we actualize them, or not, is what individualizes us. Nature doesn't care about the content of our choices, whether you're a vegan or you enjoy raw whale blubber, or if you feed on goat milk cheese. However, nature does care about the context of your choices. Do you fill your physical needs with a strong or weak interaction? In physics, the strong interaction is described as a binding force that causes form and structures to emerge. It is responsible for individualization. Weak interaction is called the radioactive force, and it is linked to entropy and death. So how do you satisfy your needs? Answering a level of need with a strong interaction gives you power. Not doing that weakens you, and the weakness contributes to your death. I'll take a look at our needs before I tell you how to fill them. We have physiological needs. We are first and foremost physical organisms, so we are in constant need of the physical ascensions required to survive. We need air, water, food, clothing, and shelter. We won't last five minutes without air, maybe three days without water, and not much longer than that without food. People lost in the wilderness will die of exposure or from a lack of adequate clothing and shelter in a very short time, depending on the climate and the ecology. Depending on how well we actualize our basics, we can even thrive. We practice some sort of physical culture to describe how we meet our basic requirements for life. To fill our physiological needs, we learn to breathe clean air, to drink and eat in a healthy way. We must dress comfortably and appropriately for our time and place. We'll seek haven in a safe place where our body and spirit can rejuvenate and find peace of mind. How we fill our needs affects our vitality, strength, endurance, and general well-being. And it influences our emotional, intellectual, and spiritual well-being, too. If you ever stuffed food down at Thanksgiving, you'll remember flaking out on the couch as well. Are you healthy? Do you feed your body well or to satisfy basic needs? or do you nourish yourself for optimum performance? Do you have the energy to exist to successfully navigate your way through life? Do you dress for comfort or for style? Is your environment conducive to peace of mind or is it chaotic? If you satisfy your physical needs, next you have security needs. You have the physiological needs for your whole life. Your security needs refer to the long-term fulfillment of your physical needs. 
Your need to feel secure can dominate your mind and become controlling force in your behavior to the same degree as filling physiological needs. I particularly notice how fragile our continuity is in times of threat as I witness the days and months following the COVID-19 global pandemic. People focused a good portion of their energy on the pursuit of security needs, paper towel, clean wipes, alcohol swabs, masks, gloves, these suddenly became concerns and sold out everywhere. Even people who appear to have everything fretted about changes and how they would affect their sense of continuity and well-being. Their security needs also represent an invisible link between who we are and who we'd like to be. People who feel insecure in the company of luminaries are comparing themselves in ways that will force them to feel inadequate. The social pecking order preys on this, so the slaves will serve, as I explained in episodes 7 and 8, Climbing the Leader Ladder, Parts 1 and 2. The search for security, for continuity and well-being, is part of our need to ensure the survival of the species. We are commanded to procreate. The sexual instinct wants us to attract others, and this need coexists with the need to protect ourselves against danger or what we suppose can jeopardize our quality of life. The need to attract someone from out there to protect us in here is the arena of the subconscious emotional conflict. Most of us are insecure about coming out of the locker room. Far from being limited to a paycheck or having a secure job, money or property, the concept of security is about a state of mind that has to do with feeling confident when considering the future. Security needs are about developing the attitude that gives value to your structural capital, your client capital, and your creative capital, as I explained in episode two. Feeling secure has to do with whether you are assembling your reality from a fear or from a love-based worldview. Assembling a love-based worldview is subject to the expansion factor from magnitude one, selfish love, and then symbiotic love at magnitude 2, and self-esteem at magnitude 3. Unconditional love is magnitude 4, and love as the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy, the love of God, is magnitude 5. Love is magic. People who feel secure give off an aura of assurance that suggests they'll have no problem satisfying their needs. Feeling secure is like being in a state of grace. It is put to the test whenever we are forced to face the unknown or to deal with sudden change, so it better be real. Without learning to manage change, we don't develop coping mechanisms that build confidence and contribute to genuine feelings of self-love. These mechanisms are what give us security. The rapidly changing world with all its problems, from a fragile ecology to its unstable economy to the foolish media, are undermining our sense of security. To compensate, we should invest in developing our emotional strength and add capital value to our creativity. Rather than be a victim of how you feel, you can understand emotion as an empowering process. Researchers have determined that emotion has its origin in a five-step process in which energy is put in motion to reach a goal. Human emotional response stems from, one, an event. Something happens that triggers a reaction that moves us to identify a potential threat 
or a personal enhancement. Two, perception of the event. We become aware of the event in a largely biased sense. That is, we physically sense the event by seeing, hearing, or reading about it, but we add stored input from our neural patterns, and so a whole new perception is created. Three, the appraisal of the whole new perception. We refer to our memory to assess the new event and to determine whether it will satisfy a goal or move us away from it, and then we give it value. That value given will directly affect the strength of our emotional response or whether we'll use a strong or weak interaction. Four, we filter the appraisal. We choose an appropriate response from a personal inventory that we believe is appropriate to reach our goals. Five, the reaction is a filtered appraisal. We transform our emotional response into a coping mechanism. How we put our energy in motion dictates how secure we are likely to feel. If we get trapped in emotional reactions that weaken us, we tire, stress out, and even get sick or otherwise distressed in some sense. Our energy level is lessened, and so our ability to respond positively to everyday situations is equally lessened. The lower emotional output considerably affects us, and that sends a signal out there that attracts bad karma. In the same action-reaction way, by maintaining a positive emotional output and resonance with love, the limitless oscillations of vibrating energy of God, you'll get magical results. You can actually live in a state of grace. Feeling secure requires you to adopt a lifestyle that increases your vital energy. Good nutritional habits, being in physical shape, having a well-rested body and mind, all these contribute to having high levels of energy, as does maintaining a trusting, worry-free attitude. Are you able to generate positive enthusiasm when you think about your prospects? If you do not feel secure, then overcompensation, exhaustion, depression, and burnout will surely follow. Do your prospects worry you or do they give you comfort? Are you investing your energy effectively? Do you find it hard to relax? Are you aware of the link between your mood and the quality of your energy? Do you have the vitality to enjoy your life? If you increase your vital energy, that is, the energy devoted to enjoying your life, you can more easily and more effectively handle daily challenges and obstacles. To feel secure, you must practice an energy culture in which you learn how to manage your emotion, your energy in motion. Then you'll discover that you also have social needs. We interact with others based on how we feel. Our negative energy limits us while feeling positive opens the way by giving us feelings of belonging, affection, and love. Our social needs reflect the human desire to live in community. The social fabric is a complex phenomenon encompassing all the interactions that connect individuals, from language to customs, from family structure to tribal traditions. Our limbic brain system is hardwired and its subconscious messages are quite clear. There can be no greater threat to personal survival than to be rejected by the tribe. Our social links, who's who in your pecking order, are often invisible 
but quite powerful. They contribute to our sense of continuity and they influence how we pursue our goals and how we participate in the, the development of our community. Social needs are manifest as our intellectual and creative pursuits. We'll enhance our social position as we develop our leadership skills, our management skills, and our self-empowerment. In order to live successfully, we must understand the people who surround us and how they affect our lives. No man is an island unto himself, wrote the poet John Donne. I hope that you never find yourself in an ICU totally dependent on a medical team to keep you alive so you figure out how true that really is. Healthy and secure, we become social creatures and can profit from a wide variety of relationships. We'll also profit from expressing our ideas and thoughts openly and honestly to others and from accepting honest and valid opinion from them. With our social exchanges, we grow to then capitalize on our knowledge and experience, expanding our creative capital. In a global village, concepts like ethics or social codes of conduct shape and shade the rapport that will be developed between us. Our personal values must reflect creative law. The golden rule is a code that applies to everyone. Man's laws are subservient to nature's laws, which are subservient to the law of one as I explained in podcast number five. In fact, you'll be a creative leader when you develop an intuitive sense of what's true and loving, and you project those values in self-interest. Consequently, you can easily recognize the ethics or lack of ethics employed by the people who surround you. This makes it easier for you to make strategic choices in terms of long-term relationships and how you should develop with people. There is wisdom in the ancient adage, birds of a feather flock together. It says that ethics determine the role we play in the game of life and the people who will play with us. A person with a strong sense of ethics and morality is free from social convention so he or she can answer the highest levels of integrity. The opposite is also true. People who look to others to know what's right and wrong weaken their own integrity and their sense of ethics. Removed from developing deeper values, they lose the ability to acquire inner strength. I recently saw a reality show that demonstrated this. A contestant earnestly avowed her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but she experienced that relationship in a rather sad way. She schemed and plotted negatively with the worst of the other contestants, but she boastfully asserted that her Lord would forgive her cheating and lying ways. Carl Jung suggested one way of discerning between individuals is how they value ethics and integrity. A lack of ethics generally means a lack of respect and consideration for others, for yourself, and for your place in the overall creative plan. Did you learn lessons from the negative things that occurred in your life? Are you involved in community projects or a charity of some sort? Are you able to seek out help as you need it? Are you a loving person? Are you love-able, lovable? Do you have personal ethics? Then you will graduate to meet your ego needs. First explained by Sigmund Freud, and then Carl Jung, and then the army of psychologists and therapists who followed them, the term ego is commonly used to describe the basic image we have of ourself. I define my own ego as my integral beingness, my physical body with my brain, mind, and memory, 
Ego includes all of my knowledge, all of my experience, and my desire in one package. I see the integral me. How ego is perceived is very important to our development. Consider how we have the capacity to form an image of ourselves and then decide if we like that image or not. Once you establish a sense of self, you should give that your esteem. You should self-esteem. You should fill your ego needs by esteeming yourself. Confused? Well, consider that you have a higher self. The self is a quality that you give your ego. A healthy ego is essential to one's development. Without it, other fundamental needs will be seriously jeopardized, even sabotaged. Consider that every human breakdown or suicide that no longer invests in his or her self-esteem. If ego identifies who we are, we can decide to esteem that identity or not. Choosing to esteem ourself gives us real power. The wise ego practices a will culture, a discipline, to assure that our ego carries out the actions that will allow us to feel good about ourselves. We have a need to feel good about ourselves, to stand apart from the tribe as esteemed individuals and to claim a separate and unique identity. Our ego should feel that we contribute positively to life and therefore merit success and happiness. People who esteem themselves will work to actualize the idea of good and thus feel good about their actions. Ego determines our personality, our place in society, our relationships with others, and our ability to express ourselves in spite of our fears of criticism and rejection. It dictates our belief about our right to a satisfying and meaningful life. Genuine self-esteem will be felt in direct proportion to the quality of our deeds and our acts. This is not a moral judgment. Rather, it's a self-evident truth that can only be resolved with personal experience. I am reminded that when I change from being an up-and-coming executive in a fast-moving company to being suddenly unemployed disabled man, in the flick of an eyelash, I felt my status change. Since then, I've seen how my own self-esteem directly influences how others respond to me. A strategic will culture suggests that any action that brings me closer to creativity, personal power, and feelings of well-being and joy is good. Easy enough to see anything that distances me from that state of health is bad. Short of that, I can add that just wanting a better life is not in your best interest. In anthropologist Carlos Castaneda's books, his wise sorcerer Don Juan Matus says that self-empowerment is the true path. He reminds us that what makes us unhappy is to want. If we cut our wants to nothing, even the smallest thing we get becomes a true gift. To be poor or to be wanting are only thoughts, as are hate, or to be hungry, or to be in pain. A spiritual warrior can survive want. He says that a spiritual warrior knows that he is waiting, and he knows what he is waiting for. While he waits, he wants for nothing and expects nothing. Then, what little he does get is much more than he ever intended or needs. We do need a quality of life. Increasing our subjective will, we can turn to actualizing our higher needs, like those introduced by a quality of life. 
It is in our self-interest to discover exactly what a quality of life means to each of us so that we can then reach it. Can you give quality to your life? Are you a creative leader? Are you managing your life in a way that nature prescribes? Are you using your will to enhance your physical well-being, your energy level, and your ethics? If you manage your life nature's way, you'll practice a physical culture, an energy culture, an ethical culture, a will culture, and a tithing culture. You will give quality to your life. So I'll conclude by asking, have you evolved over the last five years? Have you taken responsibility for your happiness? Are you living your joyful life? Just remember, nature wants us to thrive, but the only way to have a quality of life is to give quality to life. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time in episode 12. Its title is Your Soul and the Nature of Universal Politics. From self-motivation to increasing your creative capital to reaching for passion and joy, I'll explore how to manage yourself with power. Don't miss that expose. Folks, a listener told me that she gets a lot from my podcast when she reads the transcript while I'm explaining things. She said my ideas are easier to follow that way. If you want to try her technique, download a free copy of the episode transcripts from my website at www.thejungletimes.com. If you enjoyed this episode of the Jungle Times podcast, please give it a positive review. Subscribe to my channel and tell your friends about it. If you didn't like it, please write and tell me why not. Thanks again. I'll see you next time. Adios, amigos. The Jungle Times podcast was written and animated by Lawrence Poole. If you enjoyed his presentation, share it with your friends and colleagues, click the like button, and leave your opinions in the comment section. Visit thejungletimes.com to learn more about Lawrence and his adventures. Follow him on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. You can order his latest book, Invest in Your Creative Capital, from Amazon.com. Subscribe to this channel in order to receive all the latest news. Thanks for listening.